here we are indeed. We've only met for the last 10-15 minutes or so, but I'm very grateful that you'd find the time and I'm looking forward to diving in. No, I really appreciate the conversations you've been holding. It sounds like you're at the intersection of some very important thought processes going on, so I appreciate being able to kind of engage into that. Yeah, awesome. Well, for the sake of the recording and for the sake of opening up some themes for exploration, I thought it might be nice perhaps to ask you, how would you give an expression, how would you express your dedication of what you're passionate about, of what you're interested in and where that meets your mission? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I, I always find those questions difficult because they're all, I think there's something incredible unfurling in front of us and it's kind of visible in a sense and And I think being able to not only see it, but actually we're at a cusp of being able to manifest some of that stuff. And, and I think it's visible at every layer. Mm. So I'm not sure for me, it's like, I think it's, you're seeing that the future is entirely glimpsable right now. You can see it in so many different components. And, and I think it's extraordinary in that sense. And I think then it's just a dedication to uncover it. Right. Well, what are you seeing? What are you glimpsing? What am I glimpsing? I'm glimpsing so many different ways to unlock this. So I think one is just, I think we're re-emerging and recognizing, maybe it's not even emerging, re-recognizing our relationship into an entangled world. And I think the reappreciation of our entanglement means that we're moving away from a theory of separation, division, sort of classification, objectification, perspective, um, dominion, control, assertification. All these words, all these languages are constructed around a worldview rooted fundamentally in the separation of being human from the rest of the planet and the rest of the universe maybe even. And I think those, that illusion, that convenient illusion that was constructed, has been constructed for many a time, but actually was crystallized into an institutional landscape, I would argue with the Newtonian enlightenment and our thesis of science as it was born, Newtonian science, which drove that and constructed everything else, whether it's how we've understood the world, how we've separated disciplines out, science from arts and other things, how we've constructed um, land registries. That institutionalization of that worldview is now challengeable. And not only is it challengeable, I think the science is already there. Mm. So, and then that's married by a capability that hasn't existed. So I think that worldview is a function of a capability and a cap civilizational capability rooted in, in a theory of bureaucracy, analog bureaucracy, replicable analog bureaucracy. And our theory of bureaucracy has been shifting as we're moving into some form of computational capabilities that are allowing for a new recognition of operating in entanglement. And then finally, I would say that capability, you know, as people like James Lovelock have cited, you know, uh, in his last book, Never Seen, sort of is verging on the 
framework of the system becoming self-aware and self-conscious to a degree. And I find that interesting. So I think that's what I'm seeing. And then, then the fundamental questions really start to unfold. So if you take that as a perspective, then you start to say, well, in a worldview rooted in entanglement, you cannot operationalize the world and organize the world or any form participate even in the world through a theory of control. Because in a theory of control or a theory of transactions even, let's just root it there, you, you create externalities, unintended externalities in the relationship. And in that process of optimizing an entangled uh, a relationship to myself versus yourself, I create a shadow of externalities. In that process of optimizing to myself, I create asymmetric power. And in the act of creating asymmetric power, I reinforce the need for transactionality. But in that process of transactionality and shadow, I rarefy myself, but in the process I actually become more and more objectifiable and objective and objectify the world. So there's this vicious cycle rooted in our theory of transactions, and the rooting of that theory of transactions is rooted in the theory of the contract. I'm really boring. Our theory of the private contract as a means of organizing the economy has has been a contract manifestation of an objectified world. So now that now that requires in the asymmetry you construct the theory of assets, of property, of labor. So the more asymmetric we become, we create a more objectified contractual relationship with the world around us. And that amplifies the violence in the system. Now, the interesting thing is that violence has been self-terminating us to use people like Daniel Schmachtenberger's language. And whilst many people focus on the existential or sort of what I call super technologies, carbon sequestration, XYZ, or even um, tree canopies, obviously we're working on. But the problem is not the technologies of building trees. We know how to do that. The problem is the worldviews and the deep matter codes that are rooted in, in those systems. So how do we move away from a theory of contracting rooted in transactions to a theory of relationship uh, rooted in care? Now, you know, and this is derived from conversation with Forrest, and I want to fully acknowledge that most of what I say is standing on the shoulders of many other incredible giants uh, of thought. But I, what I appreciate is that when you, when you move to a, so if we move firstly, we're moving out of a theory of objectification and asymmetric power and what I'd call the passivization of agents into objects, but recognizing the inherent agency of the world around us, step one then trying to move into some form of relationship which isn't about dominion and control, you have to move to a theory of care. Now, I don't mean care as a sort of caring for something, but in care with something. And I think this is the language frame is important. So to be in care, though, requires three simultaneous computational processes. One, and again, just keep referencing Forrest. I think this is derived from Forrest's thinking, so I think it's really important to reference. To embody care, I have to spatially, temporally recognize myself. This is derived, so any mistakes are my own. Um, and then, in order to embody care, I have to be able to situate myself through your lens or the lens of, of I would don't want to use the other, but I don't have the Second lens. person. Second person. And then I have to simultaneously 
operation myself to the indivisible. You are no longer, you and I are non-divisible. So the first person, the second person, and the non-divisible. And that's when you construct the theory of care. Now that theory of care then starts to build a new theory of governance, which is no longer extrinsically driven, but intrinsically driven at the form of the relationship. So we've shifted our theory of governance being an imposed violence control system, but to being actually a relational system. And so whilst they are super technologies, you know, macro technologies, I think the technological shift that we're looking at is rooted in the agent into re-embodification of agency, as well as shifting the relationship between things. And that is rooted in reimagining myself as one, a multitude, two, a multitude that is a function of my interrelationships, and three, a multitude that's a function of my relationships in fundamental development, which is why the language I keep using is we are into becomings, not into beings, but into becomings. And to embrace that plurality, fractal plurality becomes really vital in actually a different way of operating. So I've taken the language down into what I'd call the deep code of the system, which requires transformation. And then, then we get into a really interesting question, and this is where I don't know. So I, I get that at what I would say a human-to-human level or a sort of three-dimensional computational capacity as we've discussed at the human-to-human level. Now, how do we do that within human and silicon level? Is it even possible? People like Forrest would say it's not possible because carbon-silicon substrates will never create empathy. Um, I don't know. I'm going to leave that open. I'm going to leave it open for discussion and exploration. Um, But I think what's really interesting is an entangled world. We are going to have to bridge into a landscape of synthetic certainly some landscape of synthetic embodification and some form of spatial compute which has some form of relational capacity to care. So if I was, you know, one of the big pleas that I think I would love to drive research on right now is technologies rooted in a technology of care. So what is the contract of care? What are the new technologies that embodify and accelerate relationships of care? And at that moment in time, that's a deep code that drives systemic transformation at every level, that, that changes theory of contract, that changes theory of money transactions, changes all of our currency discourse, which I think is really poor um, and driven by... I mean, my big, in the society, you, you know, my big frustration right now has been that the Web3 landscape, which should have been about entangled value, became about fractional value. It became not only about fractional value, it became about hyper-transactification of everything rather than actually new theories of value that opened out outside theories of transaction. It became about new central bank plays, you know, this decentralized only at the level of the chain itself. And grift. And grift, as opposed to actually distributing the capacity to radically produce money uh, in a different way and a claim, how you create claims on the future. And I think the key word is who has the power to make claims on the future? And if you can democratize the capacity to make claims of the future, that's a much deeper thing than the central bank that's now privatized. So, and 
Whereas those technologies were really open to what I would say entangled value functions, new transa transactional landscapes rooted not in transactions but in care, and a new democratization of who has the power to claim, make claims of the future and what is the mechanism of creating accountability to make claims of the future, which is, I think, what the theory of money is in many ways, yeah. bringing claims of the future. And I think, so. sorry, I've gone all the way through, but I think it's important, like, where we see stuff. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. And it's, uh, I think it's valuable to have, there, have that there as, as, a, as a full expression. And um, if you give me a couple moments, I just want to breathe that in, breathe that out see what's settling. There's a couple of things that came through that feel like they're valuable to question and explore together. Some of those are closer to home for me and some of them might be a little bit more of a specific intention to create something of service to a particular aspect of conversation you've referenced forest and there's a number of threads we could potentially pick up on there in terms of from a big picture perspective and staring us right in the face the very limits and the degree to which interfacing with technology at all is possible in the context of the continuation of the complexity we love <laughs> something like this life as we know it so that's a big thing and uh, certainly something i'm open to talk about, something I'm interested to return to, something that, to be honest with you, I have more of an intention to create an ongoing context for conversation for and to bring many people together in relation. So I just want to bookmark that. Can I build yeah. a little bit on something that you sure. said, which I think is an interesting but relevant thing. I, we have ended up with technologies of surveillance and control and punishment because those technologies have been rooted and developed in a theory of colonizing capital. So the resource structures, you become what you eat, you know, and you want to change an organism, you change what it eats. And I think one of the things we have to, like I think we malign technology or the theory of technology, but reckon I think as a hypothesis to this group and this group of people that we're all part of, I would say technology inherently is open to more to a greater possibility field, but I think that possibility field will be systemically narrowed because the theory of colonizing capital, which creates asymmetric power in even how money is used, deployed, incentives are structured, and those frameworks then self-replicate through the technological field. Yes, I and, hear you. And I if we want to challenge it, I think one of the fundamental challenges that we have to construct is, is new theories of resourcing technology if we're going to build alternative futures. And I think if someone wants to challenge the field of Silicon Valley, what they're going to have to do is radically reimagine our resource structures of technology and be able to build them for 21st century entangled goods problems and entangled value problems, which I think is going to be a paradigm shift. Yes. Well, I hear you. And I share the openness, uh, the hope that's in there. And there's a few ways that I would, let's say, share some of where I feel strong in relation to that perspective. And there's a few places where I can 
move towards the edges. And so I'd like to do that and also just note that for sure, a few of the people I know personally who listen to this are very much on picking up on that exact thread you've just shared are very much in dedication and also with tremendous amount of capacity to relate to this conversation and are committed to it from a, a really broad frame of what it means to live as a human being. So I'm excited to, if the opportunity presents, to introduce you into future conversations. So, okay. I want to just list a couple threads if I can, so we have them all together that I would like to inquire further into. Uh, one is something like you, you mentioned, uh, challenging institutions. I'm very interested in this. I'm interested in this as well from a perspective that includes the, the psychological and the anthropological, uh, dare I say even the religious and the spiritual, if we're wanting to be fully encompassing here. So that's there. And then there's also this relation to the meaning of technology itself. And in the voicecraft context, there's often an emphasis that is more towards what would come under the rubric of, let's say, psychotechnology, perhaps sociotechnology, and the technology in terms of how people think in terms of chips and machinery and various things is present in the field and certainly is of, is of great interest, but we've been having conversations, we've been sharing voice for a very long time. And in that sense, we've been participating in communication mm-hmm. with, the, with the ecology as such for a very long time. And it certainly does seem to be the case. And I know you've referenced this in some of the talks I've heard you give, reference indigenous perspectives. And, and um, from where I'm sitting, Um, there is a profound continuity that I feel even as a question and as a tension, but certainly as a connection to my own indigeneity and the indigeneity we can realize here together. We strip away the cameras, right? Here we are together attempting to commune in some sense in relation to what we care about. We're attempting to be in relation with the big pattern but we're sharing heart as well. I mean, there's a, there's a certain um, putting on the line um, with authenticity. Well, here we are, here's how we're seeing. And I say this to presence, I guess the, the, the trivial perspective to some degree that we are already furnished, we are already equipped. In fact, our very mode of encounter itself is furnished by prisms of perception as a kind of imminent here we are, that which I'm looking through, that in some intimate sense I participate in orienting. Uh, If we're talking about care and relationship from that relational perspective, a psychological perspective, that familial kinship, all these types of things, there is a nuance and a subtlety of how we participate in sharing understanding together, the very what it is to relate to question and tension of that as such. I I mention this because it seems to me to be deeply relevant to this other thread in terms of challenging institutions and challenging the way that people come together in bureaucratic context to achieve certain outcomes based on what? You know, based on an awful lot of momentum that you could delineate in various ways, but an awful lot of pressure to stay within the lines of business as usual. And so, you know, part of one of the reasons why I'm interested to speak 
with you is, you know, and I'd love for you to share more about this because we're just getting to know each other. But I'm curious how you relate to the phenomenon, let's say, of challenging institutions in terms of what it is to meet the relational field of that. Can I just leave that open? Do you sense what I'm getting at? I, I do. Um, I do. I, the way I would engage with this is actually to start with your second question and work backwards. I mean, sort of to, to draw a caricature arc of technology, which I think is useful for us to draw, just as a thought experiment. So if we imagine humans as fully embodied relational beings, and our first moment of technology being the act of instruction, telling someone else what to do, instructability. Second act was perhaps to create a tool to leverage our capacity, asymmetric leveraging. Third act, perhaps some theory of a machine, a tool which is replicating and being able to op optimize, carry on working by itself. No longer am I directly engaged with it. The next dimension becomes perhaps the theory of the corporation, which is a rule-based system which is able to operate the world through a theory of machines, right? right? Including humans, including assets in a new theory of... And then I would say you would go to what I would call a, a corporation system which is then backed by monetary markets because they create a, a sort of incentive, they use a signal system of profit and value calculation as a means to orchestrate at a meta-planetary scale. Now, I lay that out because one of the things that's interesting about all those dimensions is they're all rooted in some theory of control post the embodied human being. And I think the thing I find most interesting and most profound, I would say deeply profound, is when you return to indigenous views of the world and you could pick whether it's flowering wand and sort of partnership societies and Minoan partnership societies in Europe, or whether you look at you know, the rise of um, sort of indigenous nations in, well, not the rise, but the first nations and indigenous nations in Turtle Island, or whether you look at uh, Aboriginal sort of rights and governance of lands um, in Australia, New Zealand, but also everywhere else, you and indigenous cultures all around the world, you have a different theory of relating to the world. And I think this movement from partnership societies to sun gods or sort of control societies was a tipping point and a tipping point that actually then manifested its way all the way through our, our frameworks. Now, what those frameworks, as I said, the tool, the machine, the corporation, the financial, they've, what they've all done is abstracted control and orchestrated increasingly through control-based economies. Now, the problem has been, when we were first doing tools, that in the harm relative, the relative harm of a tool to the scale of the planet was insignificant. When we operationalize that they are, I think it's more horses 
than they are wild animals, something crazy like that. Sheep and different Sheep, things like right. this. Um, you start to realize that we have fully instrumentalized the world and the externalities of that are self-terminating us. So if you see that whole route, then the question of technology becomes really interesting. And then the question becomes, these have all been theories of control. Now imagine a moment when we move towards a theory of what's also developing is, is some degree of spatial, what I'd call, let's call it spatial compute. So compute has allowed us to be able to move from instructable systems to parametric computing or parametric decisions based on multiple factors. It's able to say if, what, then. It's able to make a f the field of decision spaces improved. And you could argue with some form of machine learning, you've improved the field space of that decision again. Mm -hmm. What we've then started to create now, I think currently the problem is that most of our machine learning is quasi-universal. It's a universal field space, particularized only by the question. But if you then move that to what I would call spatial, spatially specific, so embodied machine learning, which is starting to happen, there's some really nice papers out there, you start to talk about machine learning in relationship to. At that moment in time, we open up a paradigm that starts to match. So, you know, from an indigenous perspective, people like John Burroughs and sort of Satsang and sort of uh, Turtle Island would say, talk about the nation of trees. Okay, so now we start to talk about a different worldview. At the same time, we know, for example, trees planted by communities versus municipalities through procurement, trees planted by communities survive, 90% of them survive. Trees planted by, by municipalities, 50% of them survive. Now, why is that important? Because relationships of care actually are vital parts of the balance sheet of that good. So actually what you start to realize is our financial system, single optic balance sheets models, which only talk about finance, the capital, uh, financial capital, has been creating vast inefficiencies and externalities. When we start to take a multi-capital approach and multi-capital business models, which recognize that financial capital is one of many capitals that weaves together to construct possibility, you start to operationalize a different worldview. So if you start to marry a theory of, say, spatial compute in some fashion, with that landscape, we start to create a new possibility field. Is it going to be able to deal with, I think, the philosophical endpoint of a complex system, which is computational capacity for care in its most profound sense? I don't know. But will it radically improve where we are now, an asymmetric power system on rarefied theories of control to distributed theories of agency and learning systems? as a means of coherence and continuous self-cohering systems. Pretty extraordinary, pretty plausible. And in that is a rooted a new theory of radical freedom, a radical freedom of agency in relationship to being in care. And it's not a new, not, this is why I think the problem has been that our theories of economy, whether it's capitalism or any theory of socialism, they've only shifted who controls. Right? Capitalism is individual's control. We want to maximize that. 
Socialism is more like collectively control. But the problem is they're still dominant theories of control. Whereas actually we need to move from dominant theories of control to actually theories of learning, emancipation, and ennoblement as of the, all the agents in the system, which builds, which is rooted in a new theory of care. So the worldview I'm positing here is massively emancipatory, right? It is not rooted. And I think that it's rooted in a new radical theory of freedom, freedom to be radically relational, freedom to be radically human, and freedom to be radically agentified for human, non-human, and, and more than human systems. And I think there's a vision that's not only like, is it a, like, for, for the first thing, it's like, I don't take credit for any of this, right? But it's taken a while to weave that position together. But when you weave it, you can't unsee it because it's visible and it's visceral and it's plausible. Because I know you can construct the politics of this. Because if I stand in front of people right now and recognize how enslaved and entrapped people feel in their lives and the diminishment of being human to being quasi-instructable machines, bad robots and diminished from their full sense of being and becoming, there's a deep politic and then there is a systemic politic of our current theory of control can no longer organize complexity. It's an informational theory impossibility. Like, so we've reached two dimensions, a political sort of possibility, an informational impossibility of the current system, and a new thesis of a bureaucratic capability. Now, why I bring that out is that when you root this institutional landscape through that lens, you take a different view of the world. Right. It's important that we don't talk about micro-adjustments to our current theory of institutions. We have to talk about a new thesis of what does it mean to institute and instituting into a, into a different worldview. Yes, no, I hear you. Well articulated. Hmm. So my sense is that there is a relationship with death which is in the main part critical to I would say metabolize enough of what you are saying in order to in an embodied sense live out that hope in that sense, I'm gesturing towards the post-tragic in a critical way. What I've noticed for a long period of time in my life is that actually human beings will persist in a narrowing entrapment. We get caught in patterns of addiction and delusion. This is fairly standard from <laughs> just anyone can notice, but you can take a cognitive science perspective. So we often find ourselves, I won't go so far as to say uh, choosing from the wholeness of our being, but participating in our own enslavement. Mm -hmm. A lot of that has to do with the relation to death. Death here partially in a literal sense, although what do we mean by death is an interesting question, but certainly 
to broaden it and to just open it from a metaphorical perspective and to think about it in terms of what it is to participate in transformation, what it is to step on, to step through, across a threshold into a radical new way of being. I appreciate you used the word roots on a number of occasions. And of course, radicality can very much be thought of in that way, mm-hmm. sort of the essence of its meaning. And um, in that regard, of course, we have notes here of indigeneity, of a kind of return, in fact, to a way of being in the world, a way of, a way of uh, <laughs> uh, contributing to our and participating in our own process of becoming, which we could understand with respect to the procession of modern history as through lenses of a new theory of care. But we are here relating again with something rather old indeed, or at least something which I would at least emphasize uh, with a measure of profound continuity in terms of what it is to um, be life, as, as you put in one of your talks, and that I often uh, mention a similar thing that life wants to live. Hey? And, um, and so the reason why I emphasize the psychological in these aspects is because I'm very curious about the um, communication course of information, but the communication of uh, ways of seeing, ways of learning together, ways of participating that afford this mode of, let's say, seeing, participating, and in some critical sense, trusting that there are ways of building and doing in the world which are worthy of in a sense, there's, a, there's something to rejoice. There's joy in the opportunity of life. There's a tremendous amount of dystopic and mm, pained and understandably so thought rife with a, the kind of philosophy which makes it difficult to get out of bed in the morning for many people. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not here wanting to diminish the, the criticality of the stakes or the importance of the perspective that uh, we'll hear all over the place with respect to the, let's use the language, self-terminating pathways of many aspects of social life, political life, economic life, the way we're treating the world and each other. Um, And so to tie things together, there very much does seem to be a, um, from my perspective, one of the great challenges is the creation, the furnishing of context, relational context that support participation and communication in a way of relating with this material in a manner that, um, uh, that doesn't so much uh, posit the kind of emancipation that I can already imagine people I've spoken to, various um, echelons of society who would feel like, whoa, hold up, even that word is too much. Hang on a second. I want to feel a little bit grounded in what's present. What's this immense? And perhaps it's because on some fundamental level, there is a, there's a tension, there's a kink, there's a knot in the system in relation to the processing of, I mentioned things like death, and let's just call it significant transformation and change in the context of pressures that we haven't built and cultivated together in relationship before it's possible necessarily to spend extended time in the, in the criticality of theorizing and some of these 
um, more heavy philosophical um, dial you know, dialogic explorations, which isn't a criticism of them. I'm just very much in the mud of attending to that. I see that as a tremendous. I see that as a tremendous um, challenge. I see it as fundamental, and I, in these conversations with yourself and others, you know, I'm here not just for the sake of this one-off, but I'm here very much with a, with a desire to cultivate a mutual care for the threads of meaning between us, but the relational field that we participate in, so as to extend to the degree possible the possibility to participate in the kind of field that can support the metabolization and the being with what we're speaking about, and then there's the whole practical element of what it means to actually say any of that in the context of institutions. And yeah. so I'm just sharing some things here. Yeah, yeah no, it's great. I'm, I'm going to... There's a few things I want to delve into in that, which mm. I think was really helpful. One, I think the conversation we're having, the reaction that you described to this sort of conversation is visible only at what I would call the institutional political landscape level. Because, but if you look at real holders of risk into this worldview, whether it is communities that are right now intersectionally in the middle of this, so I do talks literally at citizen scale, and you can have this conversation at that scale. Agreed. Right? So this is not a, now, Challenging institutions is part of the part of the yeah, frame, yeah. But but on the on the civic level, you can have this conversation. The conversation that you and I just had, perhaps slightly different language, but not substantively. Conceptually, you can have this conversation. Where this conversation is the most difficult is what I would call if we were to get forty politicians here, right? And that's only because they're operating in a derivative landscape of information, and their level of what I think they're. There's, they're living in a rarefied system of information which I think is misinforming them as to the political landscape. Second, anyone holding intergenerational wealth, anyone that holds wealth across generations is now able to perceive these risks materially. So if you're an intergenerational wealth holder, so let's say you own a very large farm, let's use that as an example, we, you know, many of them know their soils are degrading. Many of them know not only are the soils degrading, their balance sheets don't reflect the value of the degradation of the soil. Many of them know the cost of securing their land and maintaining it is actually going up because actually social legitimacy is fading. The ability to orchestrate labor in that model, to invite labor into work, is, is diminishing. So what we're seeing is that these extractive systems are now starting to actually erode systemically. So holders of intergenerational real wealth, not abstracted financial wealth, again, actually can feel this. Security services, anyone who's in the security landscape can certainly see these systemic risks at the 50-year horizon level, and they can see the entanglement problems. Security is no longer about military. It's about food, energy, water, systemic entanglements. And anyone who's in the central banking landscape can see this because they can start to see the fragilities of the current system and the manifestation of loss of 
loss of predictability. It's not climate change, it's climate breakdown, which means we lose predictable weather systems, which means we lose predictability, which means lose insurability, we lose insurability, we lose capital markets. Capital mark all that worldview is based on a theory of some theory of predictability and some theory of linear linear capital allocation to that. So I think there is a political construct that started to see this stuff. So I just okay. want to sort well, of I'm not glad not, to hear that. Yeah. I don't, because I, often I get into rooms and people say, oh, well, it's great, you guys are talking this, no one else gets this. I was like, no, I don't think that's true. I think there are people that are sensitized right now to that landscape. Second thing I want to pick up is that I think there is a, I think the the conversation on death, I think, is was, you sort of touched on it, and I think it's quite important. And I think, you know, I, I probably... I haven't thought about it massively, so I caveat that through the lens. The obvious landscape is only because you die do you know how to live, blah, 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 first step. I think that's just the first horizon of thought. I think the second horizon of thought is, is something else. It's, it reminds me of like a forest triad of thinking, that you almost have to think yourself finite, infinite, and relationally like you have to think through three dimensions and you have to be able to cross compute across those three dimensions. If you only thought yourself as finite, you would give up. If you only thought yourself as infinite, you'd, you'd do nothing. And if you only thought yourself as, as, as a moment, as having no theory of continuity, of relational continuity, I, I don't think we'd have progress. So we live at the triad of those things of death. It's not a singular theory of death. It's that relation and the balance of that. The problem is, is we've created a societal worldview which has predicated a single theory of death, a thesis of death, which is about in perpetuity, to the foreverness, the illusion of foreverness, without actually living, co-living with... And I think this is where Forrest thinking, you know, he's only shown me a fractal of it, but I think there's something interesting to be able to exist at those intersections, those three different computes. And it's not a singular compute problem, it's a three-body compute problem. And I think this is what consciousness does. It allows us to live in this, the intersection of that. And then there was, um, you mentioned one other point that I wanted to bring up. Yeah, I, I'm nervous of, and please, you know, listeners, participants, correct me. I'm nervous of any view, any what I'd call return to the past view. Any sort of worldview that sort of says, oh, you know what, we're going to return to this worldview. And I'm nervous of it because I don't think we're going to return to an indigenous worldview. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to return to a new multi-eyed way of seeing or a two-eyed way of seeing with the entanglement and the enlightenment fused together to create a new quantum entanglement. Mm. Right? And I think the science has already done the work to actually become part of that thesis. I think there's a new world view emerging that rhymes with the past. It rhymes with it. But what it is, is fundamentally different because this entanglement is at a planetary level, at a collective self-awareness level of an order of magnitude that's unbelievable. Eight billion people, 8.2 billion people becoming so entangledly self-aware and systematically conscious as a planet. And if we are the planet, we are part of the planet. We are the systems of the planet becoming self-aware. And we are systems of systems. 
So I think, yes, it rhymes with it, but I think it has foundationally a different quality. It will build something of a, of a magnitude of other. Now, what I'm very careful to do, and I think DM is very careful to do, is I try not to paint that future. <laughs> because I think that future is an emergent function rather than a prescribed linear function. I was listening to, there's a lot of technologists, you know, Peter Thiel and everyone says, you've got to intentionally make futures. And I think I understand that from an engineering level. And I think there's two ways of intentionally creating futures. One, to create the future. And the other one is to create the conditions for the future to emerge. And you can work at two levels. And I think, so we, as long as we're working at both levels, it works. You have to have some degree of intentionality on the construction, but you can also intentionally construct what I would call is the attention fields shift, which creates the futures as an emergent function. Because I think this future will be emergently radically responsive in ways that we're just not able to predict through a modernist, linear, predictable landscape. And I'm nervous. I think, you know, I, I think certainly myself, I think we're part of a bridging generation. I don't think we can see the future. We can prescribe the context shift for it. I'm not sure we can be the future because we're not embodied to be it, but we can analytically describe it to bridge us from A to B. I think if at best I would say we're a sacrificial generation <laughs> because we cannot embody the being of what's required on the other side of it. And that's okay. I'm very comfortable with that. Yes, I, I hear you. I think, that's, I think that's well put. I resonate with a lot of that. To speak on behalf of the perspective I was sharing, it's mm. not so much um, intended as a return to a whole worldview, but rather that we can source, there is a... Body of intellect. That, there's also a continuity totally. of what it is to, to do life. Totally. To, to, and, and so there's something... Um, you know, if we take really radical uh, experiences, maybe people might talk about near-death experiences or they might talk about um, psychedelic experiences, sure. deep transformational experiences. One of the things that's been, I would say, clear to me in relation after some time is that the orientation of navigating, let's, let's call it, intensity, whether that comes through the kind of expansion or the well it's, it's, it's very interesting because you know expansion can follow that which uh, narrows very profoundly. And so we're in in let's say, in becoming through that transition, it's been my contention, I contend, you know, I find, well, I should say it's, it's been my contention that there is a, that there's something we realize in that transition, in that sense, as being, which is in profound continuity with, like, the nature of is itself. Yeah. And... And, and partly that means that wherever we're going, it can be as, in some sense, as radically different as you like. But in, when we say radical, it is in part a reference of a return to the roots. It is not a yeah. cutting off. We are not effacing ourselves and what we are and what we've been. And, and in that, I find that 
the energy of that seems to me to be of the very essence of, of deep communitas, of invitation. And so it's one of the reasons I emphasize, but it's quite a precise thing. It's not, it's not an invocation of an entire worldview that's going to intellectualize itself in terms of a particular conception of animism and perhaps uh, a whole scale um, affirmation of how we're ontologizing various patterns of behavior that we recognize um, because we've come to through science and the cultivation of that, let's say, scientific impulse to offer some continuity there between the indigenous worldview and then the, the modern scientific, that scientific impulse. I mean, there's been so much learning. <laughs> there's been so much learning and that's okay. That's, uh, that's very exciting. I think that's right. I think the, the thing I sort of, my, my worry, and this is just a personal worry, I think when we look backwards, we need to, you know, like when people sort of say, oh, I don't know anyone who's done this, but people say, oh, I, I looked at my, I, looked, I got my DNA examined, and I was sort of like, I I'm 50% X, 12% this, and I was like, that's technical bullshit. Because all you can really say is your journeys from East Africa. So what you can root is the journey you've taken over X billion years from East Africa. You're not from anywhere. You've just made different journeys. Mm, I like that perspective, yeah. And the reason why that's important is my worry is that we can talk about a quasi-ownership or quasi-indigeneity to a land or a piece. Agreed. And actually, and you know, you could say, well, India, you're probably from Indian origin. I was like, well, yeah, maybe. Maybe some Greek mixed in when, you know, Alexander the Great came over in northern India. Probably something, you know, probably before that, so, or after that, some Persian uh, influence as well. And then you start to go, well, and then probably, you know, 50,000 years before that, some move from East Africa. Like, my worry is that we start to, we still start to objectify these parts rather than seeing them as just journeys. And as long as we can see ourselves re-entangled back in history, then history becomes useful. But if we use history to create our divisions, then history becomes a problem. Mm. And too often I've recognized that as we look backwards, we look backwards to find our divisions and our separations. And, 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 there, and there we're constructing history and like, you know, your DNA testing. That piece of code where it says you are 50% this, it's utter bullshit. It's like, I cannot even see the conceptual framework or the scientific framework that allows someone to describe that. Right? Well, you could say it's, it's past. In, in part, it's a kind of, in this sense, it's a kind of attempt to understand the nature of self or subjectivity through, through notions of uh, symmetry rather than continuity. And that's something that would be, you know, this is language and that Forrest Landry uses uses a lot, and so I think I'm using that yeah. um, fairly in this context, but certainly I make use of these notions without totally. having to reference his whole schema of thought. But I like the emphasis on journey, and that speaks a lot more to the, to the, to the real meaning of continuity as I intended it. And I exactly. think that's a very important point with respect to 
the grounding of identity and that which becomes rigid and fixed and ultimately participates in division. Out. In division. So that's very well put. And I think simultaneously yeah. we can also talk about entangled futures. Yeah. So our futures are entangled into the future as they are entangled into the past. And I think if we can construct the politics of recognizing those two entanglements, I think we can start to deal with the present. The problem is when we use, and you know, I think every great war has been constructed on a theory of historic divisionality. Some form of foundational illusion of some the thesis of division, which actually, or a momentary division, which has been the perpetual basis of that war, and you can look to present circumstances very cleanly. And, and all I want to say is that that is a political construct. It is a construct of power. It is a construct of the maintenance of power. It is a construct of people. It is not a construct of science. It's not a construct of what it means to be life. It's not a construct of recognizing our systemic historic entanglements. They are momentary theories of power that are trying to persist. Well, that's very well, that's very well put. And thank you for sharing your energy. I'm conscious of our time. And that seems like a reasonable place to um, lay those threads to rest. Although there's, there's plenty more. I, I feel personally the energy to uncork a few more. Do you know what I mean? But I maybe, do. maybe we will call it there for today. And thank look you. forward to the next time. Eh? It's a real pleasure. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Awesome. Yeah, it's really important what you're doing, weaving these thoughts together and allowing us all to build on each other, which I think is incredible and uh, very powerful. So, thank you. Awesome.